Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin. I'm Heidi. And today we'll be discussing Chapter 3, Holly Jolly. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. It's actually been quite a while. If you tuned into the last two episodes and you happen to notice a sound difference between then and now, that's because we recorded those two episodes in the early months of 2020, specifically February and March, and uh, some things changed right around then. So we are now recording remotely as of August of 2020. We were hoping that we could record together, but... We're still separate, so we are recording in our respective homes. So just wanted to go ahead and acknowledge that and also just to go ahead and say what a rough year this has been and all that that implies. But we've come now to the point where getting back into this and and recording again is something that's going to bring us both a little bit of joy into our lives. And hopefully anyone who's listening, it brings you a little bit of joy too. So that's why we're here. So let's get started. First things first, initial production shoutouts. This is the first episode directed by Sean Levy. He's one of the producers, uh, directed eight episodes of the show overall, and then just as a little fun note, he's also directing the upcoming film Free Guy. Joe Carey's in it. So another one of those cases of like producer or director like bringing in, in this case both, bringing in someone that they work with. Cool. So the writers for this episode are Jessica Mecklenburg, And then also Jesse Nixon Lopez, the staff writer, same as episode two. She's a writer on this episode along with the Duffer Brothers. The DP for this episode is Todd Campbell. And then I realize we've gotten this far into the show, which granted three episodes, but I don't know that we've said much about the musical score at this point, but just kind of a general blanket shout out for all of the musical score. And that, of course, being composed by Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon. One of the very key identifying things about the show is the the OST, along with the musical like soundtrack, you know, in a lot of like genre pieces, whether that's horror or fantasy or that kind of thing, music is so important because it can really come to define the emotional experience of the piece. So I'm thinking of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And just as a one-to-one comparison for Stranger Things, I'm actually thinking of the X-Files. Mark Snow, who did the music for the X-Files, I mean, he's just absolutely brilliant. And it's the mark of that kind of like defining music where you can just hear a few notes from the theme song and you're exactly into the spirit of the show and you're like in the moment to the point where even people who are maybe not super familiar with the show recognize it. Moving into the episode breakdown itself, we're going to continue with the same pattern that we were using before, which is describing the episode based on the groups of characters rather than sequential. And we're going to start with the high school group. That's Nancy, Barb, Steve, Tommy, Carol, and sometimes Jonathan. So like with episode two, the cold open picks up where it left off, remains in the high schooler's point of view. But unlike episode two, we stay with the high schoolers after the series intro. And I feel like that adds yet again to that, you know, that bingeable and literary feel. Not only do we pick up for the cold open with the same point of view, but then we stay there. I will never watch this cold open again. 
I'll absolutely watch season one again. Just as a side note, season one is my personal favorite. I will watch the episode again, but I will not watch this cold open again. It's just so hard to watch. And I think from what I remember, this may have been the moment, the one moment where I considered walking away from the show in its entirety. It's just so insanely misogynist on really every possible level. It's entirely possible that it won't hit that way for everybody, you know? Step one, Nancy decides to have very consensual sex with Steve. Very consensual on her side. She is the one who initiates. It's also portrayed as being quite casual. When she ends up telling Karen that she and Steve had sex, the, one of the first things that she says is, it doesn't matter. And it's true. It really doesn't matter. Because in the scheme of things, we're trying to find Barb. We're not trying to worry about, you know, oh my God, a teenager had sex. And I think that's like really, really refreshing. So like the way that, you know, when she gets up in the morning, she kind of looks at him and she kind of feels like a little bit awkward. And she's like, I'll see you at school, I guess. And he's just like, eh, I'm sleepy. But it's not a dismissal. So to splice that with having her best friend be brutally murdered by a monster is a very clear punishment. At the exact same time, Barb being punished for not having sex because she was outside she was lonely she was feeling you know she was feeling rejected by nancy and by nancy's new friend group because she doesn't fit in it's not like she and tommy h and carol are going to get along she obviously doesn't super get along with steve there's no guy for her there she was kind of left out and because she didn't want to drink and didn't want to do the whole party party thing she was very literally left out in the cold and as a result she was attacked by the monster and brutally murdered and there's so much in 21st century media about whether women do or don't have sex and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't it's just gross and on top of that so much of horror fetishizes and almost sexualizes women's terror and pain and murder. And this scene is just continual torture of her until she dies. It's just, it is a gross scene. And I really hate it. It feels like just in case you missed it at the end of last episode, we're really going to drive this point home now. You know, I don't know that that's something I would have noticed if it hadn't been for our discussion last episode. They have these moments where the genre that they're trying to pay homage to it's not cohesive with the world that they're creating on their own. This cold open is more upsetting even than a lot of the body horror that we see in season three. While the body horror stuff is is awful, this is more personal. We are invested in Barb as a person. We are invested in Nancy and Barb's friendship. And killing Barb, I'm kind of of two minds because I see what they were going for. We set up this relationship that's very close they care about each other very much. I mean, that the strength of that relationship extends into season two in mm -hmm. that, you know, she is determined to see justice for her friend. And that's beautiful. So in some ways, I kind of want to say that killing Barb is not necessarily the wrong choice narratively. However, one of the reasons that I'm so disappointed by the misogyny of the cold opening is because I know they can do better. She goes home and she runs into her mom. I just, I adore 
that sequence. It's fantastic. And it's so seldom that you actually see this kind of moment between mother and daughter that's done in a way that doesn't disrespect one or the other. Nancy is beginning to have experiences and a part of her identity and a part of her life that is very private, that she's not willing to share with her mother. And that is a very real and a very painful part of every young woman's life. And it's a very healthy part of growing up where you kind of like, you know, you need to separate. She doesn't yet know how she feels about Steve in general or how she feels about what their relationship is going to be going forward. Like to say, is he your boyfriend? And for her to be like, no, I think that frustration comes from her frustration and being like, does me liking sex make me a slut? Is he going to tell everybody? Is he going to lie? Right? So there's a lot of like, really, really, really complex emotional stuff that goes on with your first sexual experiences. And I like that they lean into that. Nancy is still Nancy. She does not disappear into Steve. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to, though, add about the interaction between Karen and Nancy, though, is that it's especially meaningful now to go back and see that scene and watch this interaction with them, knowing how it evolves, both them as mother and daughter and their relationship together, but also them as characters apart. And seeing it, this this early moment between them was really cool. When Steve approaches her at the locker, the first time I watched this, I was shocked to see Steve not only approach Nancy at school at all, but then lean in, metaphorically speaking. I did not expect that. I'm not sure that I totally trusted him yet, but I had to admit that they they had subverted my expectation because unlike earlier in the bedroom scene that we discussed in chapter one, this didn't feel like a long game manipulation to me. The first time I watched it, I was like, oh, he really didn't tell anybody. I mean, he says that, but it seems quite sincere. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but he's like, hey, I want to talk to you in front of your locker. And I want to give you a little kiss and be like, oh, you have butterfly stickers in your locker. It's cute. You know, like mm -hmm. it became apparent to me that whatever other dumbassery was going on in <laughs> Steve's brain, he does for real, for real like her. You know, he's trying to be cool. He's trying to be charming, as you do, as anybody does. Like, he's not trying to immediately tell her just how much he likes her because mm -hmm. we don't do that as people, <laughs> at least well, not right off the bat. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, you really yeah. have it bad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I, now, like in hindsight, like I absolutely buy it, like 100%. And I read from the way that Kiri plays it. I personally think that this is the moment where the character pivots from where he was supposed to go originally. I think it would have been very easy to lose track of him here. I believe this might be the first time he has said this to someone, at least sincerely. He's confident enough and comfortable enough to say these things, but he doesn't say them often. I wasn't there, but I think it's very, very easy to read that like, this scene could have gone any, any, any number of ways. And having him take this more vulnerable route is really interesting. And like, I give Joe Carey a lot of credit. And, you know, also kudos to the Duffer Brothers for listening to Carey when, you know, mm -hmm. when he was like, yeah, we could go the stereotypical route here. But what if we didn't? 
And like, you know, one thing that Stranger Things consistently gets right across all of the seasons is allowing the men to be complex and to have layers and to show vulnerability. And that's really great. It's like something I have read in the the book, The World Turned Upside Down, that you gave me. I don't have a direct quote in front of me, but one of the things I remember reading was from Kiri himself saying, I just wanted to make sure that everything that he did was motivated, that he was a real person, essentially. Like, he didn't just right. do things because the script says to. I mean, if they really wanted to to do the cardboard cutout, Steve... You don't have to have that scene at all. You could have cut Mm -mm. directly to the next time we actually see Steve is when he's fucking up Jonathan's camera. So that would have given us a very, very different Steve to not have this quiet moment of A, reassuring her and B, kind of like opening up and being vulnerable to her. I mean, even if all you do is airlift out, you know, you go from him saying like, "Um, well, I didn't tell anyone. And her going, no, and and you're being paranoid, you know, because he Mm -hmm. plays it up to that point. It's a little bit arrogant and a little bit condescending. But Mm -hmm. then because she says, yeah, I know, I know. And he's just like, no, it's it's cute. And you if you cut straight from there to just him leaning in to kiss her, that would then have this like, yeah, I have you completely under my control. This is great. Like, that's how that would have read. And I think that would might have been what I was expecting. So from there with this group, we move into the scene in the cafeteria. And I kind of like the way that both Nancy and Steve sort of stare at Tommy stunned after he's been poking at Carol's cut or bruise or whatever. Or like whatever with, the hell it is. Yeah, like with his spoon and then eats his applesauce with it. Like they both Ugh. stare at him like, really? <laughs> I just thought that's funny that they both do it. Any reasonable person would. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. both just like, ugh. Tommy H. and Carol, it is a compliment to the actors how much I cannot fucking stand these kids. Like, for Tommy H. being like, I don't know who you're talking about. That is the most dickish thing to say. (laughs) He knows exactly who she's talking about. He's just being an asshole. When Tommy and Carol start mocking the two of them, Nancy and Steve, like, Steve is clearly amused by it. He doesn't stop them because I think he's seeing it as like, oh, it's all in good fun it's still ultimately kind of glorifying him a little bit because I feel like Nancy just kind of sits there and endures it. But because she's already concerned about Barb, she doesn't look as like embarrassed as she would have like say earlier in the morning. But then again, if she had seemed more openly upset, Steve probably would have made them stop. So interesting. My reading is, is a little different. Like if I was going to teach a class on like how toxic masculinity hurts all genders, I might even like use this as an example because we know textually from things that we have seen earlier of Steve that he like really legitimately likes Nancy. And we also know that like Tommy H is his best friend, right? Steve is in this impossible situation because he either has to stick up to his best friend or stick up for his girlfriend. It's tough. It's genuinely really, really tough. I think we all have been in a situation where someone we cared about was doing something that was uncool or doing something that you know would upset somebody else. And you're kind of like, can you not? Especially when you're really young and your friends are picked more through proximity than through like shared values and shared interests and whatnot. And also because it is sort of like glorifying you know, Steve for getting laid, he's supposed to be happy. This is supposed to be a thing that he's like really proud of and bragging about. But 
when I look at Steve, he looks really uncomfortable. Like he's doing that like laugh, you know? And then Mm. he keeps like glancing over at Nancy, like, are you cool? Are you cool? Are you cool? You know? I would, it's because it's funny. I feel myself wanting to take that reading instead, but I can't do it. He like reaches over and like pats her knee and is like, she's probably just skipping. And I, I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to reassure her. He's trying to be like, it's okay. Don't worry. You know? But what he's not doing is taking into account that she knows Barb a great deal better than he does. And she is the one who would know whether or not it is likely for Barb to skip. Yes, it's nice that he wants to make her feel better, but he's placating her. He's being patronizing. Not intentionally, but he is. And part of that is that he's a teenager. And I'm not trying to let Steve off the hook with this because it's not a good enough reason. But he doesn't know Barb. He really only met Barb once, you know. Mm -hmm. So he is not going to have the deep emotional connection to her that he has to Nancy. And he's absolutely not going to have the deep emotional connection to Barb that Nancy does. And he's not going to, like, blow her off the way Tommy and Carol do. No. So moving into the confrontation with Jonathan in the parking lot. It doesn't make me quite as uncomfortable as the cold open, but it's, I'll be honest, it's a close second because the scene is framed as what's happening to Jonathan is wrong. Jonathan is being bullied and I don't agree. I love Jonathan. We have talked about how I love Jonathan. We've also talked about how I have to ignore the fact that he took photos of Nancy without her consent because what he did, it was a violation of Nancy's privacy, of her autonomy, and of Steve's. Steve might not be in the pictures, but he was there. I think he is in some of them, not yeah, as clearly I know, as he, I know he's in but... the ones that are by the pool, but I don't think he's in the one where Nancy's taking her shirt off. I know that there is a photo that you see at some point. You can't really tell that it's Steve, but Nancy is with, you can see that he is, that he's behind her in one of the photos. Like he okay. has come over to the window, but just the fact that she's standing there at all blocks him and he's taller than her, but yada, yada. And so I do read him as very angry. I read him as quietly angry. I wouldn't want my boyfriend to react the way Steve does. He allows Tommy H. and Carol to see the photos. The very first thing that I would have done, both as a woman and just as a person, if I found out that photos had been taken of my significant other, would be like, those photos come to me. Nobody else gets to see them. I'm not even going to look at them until I show them to the person who was photographed because they are the person whose privacy was violated. So they get to be the ones to see the photos and to evaluate what needs to be done thereafter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, even if I had been there, that still doesn't give me the right to look at those photos because they were taken non-consensually. But I have absolutely no problem with him breaking Jonathan's camera. In fact, I found it a little hot. Like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, again, maybe that, uh, that's me being a bad feminist, but like a guy getting mad on her behalf and like doing something about it is not good, but not bad. And again, like I would have preferred that he leave it up to her, but I don't have any problem with him doing that. And I don't have any problem with the way that he talked to Jonathan because He's pissed off and he was violated too. I have a problem with the way that Tommy H and Carol reacted because they're not part of this situation at all. 
they are very much reacting as just an opportunity to shit on Jonathan, you know, like walking up and being like, boo, like Carol being like, ooh, I bet he was going to save this one for later, which is gross. Like, like they were like leaning into the trauma. Of yeah. It. The one moment where, where Tommy goes, dude, is the most candid, I think that like in a non terrible way that we see of him of the whole season. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it is the mechanics of the show trying to make us feel bad for Jonathan. They It worked on me. And I resent the fact that I do, too, feel bad for Jonathan. I'm like, no, don't break his camera. Like, uh. But at the same time, I'm like, break well, it. To be, to, be, it. To, to be fair, I think it's more the choice that he makes to perform it in this way of that it is very much performative. Yeah. You know, it has this like swagger to it. And I'm like, that's where it feels the slightest bit disingenuous so i almost wonder if it's a bit of both like he's like i am upset but also i'm gonna take this moment to really like because even from episode one from chapter one when we see nancy go over it's like he's got to be aware that they see each other periodically but also to your point like you know you've met you mentioned this last episode like there's the trust violation right yeah you're a person that nancy trusted like she sees you all the time your brothers are best friends like you have kind of really hit the nail on the head. Like, you know, she knew him. She trusted him. He was part of her circle. She reached out to him to offer sympathy. And then he turns around and does this. It's like, so again, it's just, it's so violating. The fact that, you know, Steve is is doing the whole swagger thing. I do think it that it's disingenuous, but I think he's covering up how he feels Oh, his own vulnerability. Yeah. Like, so he's like, yeah, like, you know, swagger, swagger. But like, actually, I'm really bothered by this. In the moment when he's looking at Jonathan, who looks like really hell uncomfortable and and sorry and everything. And he's like, oh, you can see that he knows that it's wrong. And then he goes on with the, oh, but he he's a pervert. He just can't help himself. But like in that in that moment, like, I know, you know, you fucked up. Yeah. Like, I, I see a little bit of like unwilling anger, like and, and anger that comes from like a kind of like pain. It's a complex scene that I think was unfortunately mishandled. Everybody is acting at the top of their game, but simply because of the fact that Jonathan is a sympathetic character, we're just not able to really allow the consequences of these actions to breathe the way they should. Because Mm -hmm. the takeaway from this scene has to be, first of all, that Jonathan's camera is broken or the lens is broken. But um, the real takeaway from the scene is Nancy seeing the photo of Barb. And it is because of that photo that she ends up seeking out Jonathan later and they end up working together. And I'm just not cool with that. I don't know of any woman who would have that journey with Jonathan if that had happened, particularly when they were teenagers. And not only did Jonathan take the photos, but he made all those prints. Nancy's whole affect in this sequence is that she feels bad for Jonathan. And I want to know why. Why? He doesn't deserve it. And then she like sees the photo of Barb and like dives for it as as you would, as you would. But then she like kind of looks at Jonathan like she's sorry. And then she like scuttles off after Steve. I'm like, what? Like what Mm -hmm. is happening in her mind? I feel like I see a lot of people defend Jonathan in terms of he should be forgiven for this behavior. I mean, and that's really a different conversation than the one we're having right now. But one of the things that always stands out to me is that it's like he doesn't apologize in this scene. 
he does later he does eventually own it but he doesn't own it in this moment he doesn't apologize he doesn't acknowledge what happened he denies it in fact like for him to say like i was looking for my brother it's like yeah but you sat there until steve and nancy were in the bedroom disrobing yeah whole like horror films have been written about about this exact concept you know this is the villain in any other film so it's just very strange it gives me no pleasure to say this lowers the level of this series as a whole as a woman as a feminist as a person who enjoys getting into the weeds and doing close readings this is one of those scenes and sequences that make me feel like i have to approach stranger things as it is i have to meet it where it lives and not expect it to meet all of my expectations because it's just not going to if you're gonna be able to yeah live in this story you have to live with that my only last note about this group is just to say that like steve's reaction to nancy leaving when she's like i forgot i was gonna help my mom with something his reaction feels like an inverse on the expectations that at least I expected to see at the top of the episode that he wants to lean in while she's eluding him, though not for the reason that Steve thinks. I just thought that was, you know, an interesting button to have on this group for this episode. Yeah. And I really, you know, I like the characterization of both Nancy and Steve in that moment, you know, because like Carol is like, I told a teacher to blow me and like a callback to the lunch scene, she's like, I am not tolerating this high school stupidity because I have more important things to worry about. And I also like that Steve is just like, oh, where are you going? And then like, I mean, what he says is what the hell's wrong with her. But it's clearly a moment of like, I thought we were going to hang out, pout, you know. So moving on to our second group. <laughs> Uh, let's let's check in with Mike, Lucas, Dustin, and Eleven. Like, how are, how are they doing? So going all the way back to the beginning, we check in with them when they're sort of reconvening. Okay, what supplies do we have and all of that? And um, I said to you when we were watching it, I just went, Lucas is such a ranger. I love it so oh. much. Ranger is a D&D class and full confession, I've never played as a ranger, so I only know bits and pieces. But just like the fact that, that Lucas has like the knife and the bandana and the binoculars and the, <laughs> the wrist rocket from Nam and like, you know, also from Nam, like he's prepared to like go out and rough it in the woods. Like he's like prepared to like deal with the terrain and the elements and also like for combat. That's very ranger like. And I just I like it because then... Dustin, like, I've got snacks, and I just like seeing these little moments of them, like, embodying life-imitating art. And I took the that moment to be like, I am Dustin, and Dustin is me, because let everybody else worry about weapons. I'm bringing food. <laughs> Anytime in my life that, like, I have planned on spending a number of hours outdoors, whether that's going to the beach, or going to an outdoor concert, or going on a hike, I'm always just like, what do we need for snacks? <laughs> I'm a hobbit. When Mike goes to talk to Elle, the the little beat of, you know, he's talking to her and he's all nice. And then he turns around and does the coming. I love that. I just think that's so hilarious. But also when he says, if you get hungry, eat Dustin's snacks. And um, she does. She which eats. like Elle's, you know, continued love affair with junk food, which is also me. I am Elle and Elle is me. And I love the scenes that we have of her like figuring out the TV and the phone and everything. But I would have not been mad if we also had a scene of her just like opening everything and then just taking like 
one bite of trail mix and like one bite of candy bar and just like figuring out all of this like new food and like the discovery of it would have been adorable. I also noticed that when she makes the falcon fly, the Millennium Falcon, it doesn't, her nose isn't bleeding after that. I thought that was kind of interesting. It must be light enough that it's, you know, not too big a deal. It made me think of uh, Matilda a little bit, you know, in the book when she she's practicing and then you're speaking to the her like opening things and looking around and exploring like the her repeating the dial tone of the phone is one of my favorite things about Elle. I love it so much. It's so cute. I love her as a character so much because she is very much a kid, but she is also just like so powerful and they're able to strike you know, most of the time, such an endearing balance between the two. And to give Elle a personality as well as a set of emotions, like you and I reacted to the way that she looks at Dustin when he tries to get her to make the falcon fly. That just like blank look she gives him, you know, mm -hmm. is just great. And the use of flashback is so effective. Oh my god, I have never, ever in my life wanted to reach through a screen and just, like, bludgeon a character like I did when when Brenner wanted her to kill that cat. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. I mean, I'm a cat and dog and horse and pig and goat and sheep person. I am, like, a pet person. Um, a while ago, a coworker was like, oh, last year you had an elephant's calendar and this year you have a wolf's calendar. And I was like, yeah, I love elephants and I love wolves. And then maybe next year I'll have an orca calendar. And they were like, so you like animals. <laughs> so, but currently in my life, tragically, I do not have a dog, but I do have two cats. So anyone in any film or anything endangering cats is just it's really distressing to me. But also, I love Elle so much. And like asking her to do that because the cat didn't hurt her is just a level well, of trauma. And I think it's really, really intricate and beautiful character note about Elle that she doesn't attack people who are more vulnerable than she is. She only attacks people when they are a direct threat either to her or to someone she cares about. Those two guards... They were hurting her. She had a reason to be angry and to want to lash out at them. There's absolutely no reason for her to want to lash out at that cat. And the cat was also a great deal less powerful than her. They show the cats doing a lot of growling and hissing. And like as a person who spends quite a lot of time around cats, they really don't do that very much. And when they do, it's because there's a severe level of stress happening. And even then... They will growl and hiss usually like once. And then if that does not have the desired effect, they will either attack or try to flee. It's just like a pet peeve of mine that so often people try to make animals behave in ways that they just don't. And I fully appreciate that it's difficult to work with animals, but... In the scene like that, you don't actually have to have the cat hissing or growling for the scene to be effective. I really kind of wonder what the logic was behind that. Why not just have the cat just like sitting there? Most cats, when you put them in a cage, will yell about it, but not in a hissy growly way. It'll just be like, meow, like I went out, you know. At least for the cat in the cage, it made me think the cat is picking up on 
what L is about to do. That it recognizes L as a predator, essentially, because also from the sound design, you then can hear that she starts to do it and then changes her mind. The sound mixing, not so much the design, but the mixing in that scene is very, very effective. Some of this, the roaring sound is that conveys that like roaring in the ears of like the blood pumping and everything without it being the very cliche heartbeat sound. But also you can hear the, the cat's growls getting more and more and more faded. So my interpretation of that was it's doing that because it's all, it already knows it's going to be attacked, essentially. Now, whether that's fair or accurate or reasonable, that's a different conversation. But I think that's probably what they were going for. I mean, I think I'm forcefully interpreting it as that she couldn't bring herself to actually attack the cat at all. And that is literally just because of the way I feel about cats. That's not based on like any textual evidence actually in the scene. It's actually maybe a little bit counter to the textual evidence that's actually there because domestic animals being attacked, just that is a thing that I cannot tolerate. And it's not even from a, I'm offended. It's just, I'm just too upset um, sure. kind of perspective. So you're probably right there, but you know, after Elle kills the two guards, not only can she not really fight back when Brenner comes in and picks her up because she's completely drained, but I noticed that he puts his hands around her head. It's her brain that he's interested in. The rest of her is just kind of a vessel for that. At least that was the vibe it gave me. I think Elle in this sequence is beginning to figure out who she is. I mean, obviously, she has not had any time or opportunity to try to assert her actual personality. And she's also very young. But up to now, she has done what has been asked of her to the best of her ability. You know, we don't get the indication that she has ever refused before. At the same time, you know, we also know that a frequent form of punishment for her is to be locked in this dark room. And up to now, she has allowed that to happen to her. This is the moment where she says, no, I won't do this. And I also won't let you do that to me anymore either. And that's a really powerful moment of her stepping into her power. And we have more moments like that as the series progresses, but this is really the first one. I just think that it's really, really well done. And it's a moment of triumph, you know, even though she absolutely just murdered two people. Mm -hmm. Well, it's what Brenner is essentially training her to do. Yeah. That, I believe, is the first time we see her sort of assume her power stance where she – it's and it's certainly the first time we see it framed that way. Like, we've seen her, like, dip the chin down and, like, do that, like – upward glance before like we saw that in episode one or chapter one when she stopped the fan but that's the first time i believe in the sequence of the episodes that we've seen her that like the wide foot stance you know shoulders back chin down and just bang like where it's just like she fully embraces it but at the same time she is still so young and so desperate to be loved mm -hmm. that when brenner comes in She's crying and she is clinging to him the way that a child would their actual parent. And it's heartbreaking. Every scene with Elle is just so beautifully layered. And I really appreciate that. Me too. To shift back to the boys for a second, we haven't really talked much about their bullies. The bullies feel very authentic. You know, again, they are reacting along those lines of toxic masculinity by saying that, like, Will deserves what happened to him because he's gay, which we don't even know 
just the assumption or just the possibility that you might be gay opens you up to this like incredible depth of cruelty from your peers especially you know in the 80s and they're they're bullying them based on like any sort of like difference in interest or difference in appearance any difference whatsoever i love the way that dustin tries to stand up to them troy says something and dustin's immediate reaction is that's not funny and i love that moment a because the way that gaten matarazzo plays it is beautiful but also because it's so grown up it's so mature just not only the scripted line but the way it was both acted and probably directed and that comes down to even and this might be the edit but it's a very quick line like he picks that up like right away you don't get to say that well i think one of the reasons that i appreciate it is because it doesn't work it's a very reasonable thing to say. It's a very true thing to say. And I think if they were adults, that would be an effective thing to say because, you know, bullying behavior, you know, power dynamics, power imbalances amongst adults absolutely exist, but not in the same way as sure. they do when you're a child. And I like that the bullies absolutely do not back down when they're called out like that. That makes them actually increase their level of bullying because. It drives home the unfortunate but true statement that once you get into an abusive relationship, you cannot reason with your abuser. Really, the only two things that will make the abuse stop are non-contact or to fight back in whatever way. Like if you are being physically abused, striking back in some physical way sometimes is necessary. I mean, we see that with these bullies that they really do need to be like physically stopped. But I do, I really appreciate that Dustin tries to appeal to their better natures and it just does not work. And then <laughs> after Mike falls over, cause they trip him and he gets up and Dustin leans down and picks up the rock and turns the situation around and is like, here, here you know, you found our weapon. If that isn't a moment of bardic inspiration, I don't know what is. The thing about Bard, and this is why it, it works for the scene in the beginning with the snacks, too, is because Bard class in D&D is all about its support. So Bardic inspiration is like you can basically like yell encouragement at someone and it this is a moment of inspiration. And I'm just like, yeah, that's a Bard. That's a Bard doing the Bard thing. And I love that. What I love about the moment when they pull fake Will out of the water and Mike starts freaking out is that like, when all of the chips are down, Lucas is the first one to be like, Mike, don't do this. He can be fussy, but he is very, very committed to his friend group. He does care about them very deeply. Yeah, oh, that ending. We'll we'll talk about the ending at the at the end of, of this, but yeah, oh man. Well let let's discuss Hopper. This is my favorite version of Hopper. Yeah, like the way that he handles getting into the lab, the way that he kind of pretends to be the bumbling cop but then like applies selective pressure at the moments that would yield the most interesting or useful information and the way he knows when not to ask any more questions the fact that he then twigs immediately to the fact that they're full of shit and they are absolutely lying to him i love competent hopper as well mm -hmm. which is Am I giving side eye to season three, Hopper? Maybe. We'll get there when we get there. This was one of the 
probably not the first scene, but one of the first scenes where I was like, oh, there's actually a reason that Hopper is chief of police. Like, he actually knows what he's doing. He's actually capable. He's not just phoning it in. For me, the real moment of impression was when he points out about the rain, there being no rain on the tape. It was like, oh, I don't know if anyone else, if that's a thing that like everyone else figured out except for me. But I remember being like, oh, that's true. Although in that moment, there was also a part of me this time that was like, maybe don't have that conversation while you're on the lab's property. But other than that, I was like, "Mm -hmm." there's a level of like stillness to his character that I like a lot in this episode. Also, to correct myself from the previous episode, there actually is perfectly legitimate reason for the cops to be at the quarry so that then when they find Will's body, again, air quotes, at the end of this episode, it's not like, and they just happen to be at the quarry? Yes, they were investigating there already, so. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I gotta take a a quick minute to talk about the librarian thing. I do know what they were going for, and I don't know what they were going for. I mean, they were going for demonstrating that Hopper has a self-destructive tendency of seeking out casual sexual liaisons and then not letting the women know that this is just casual sex, like the drinking and, and taking the pills. And I really, really like the way that she was like, hey, you should have maybe let me know. She knows she's not the one who needs to be embarrassed. He is. That I think is really cool. But there also seems to be a vibe of like, librarians or spinsters or something i don't know maybe i'm projecting i'm not a librarian but i spend a lot of time in libraries it felt weird and like kind of dumb to be honest like i don't think they really needed to actually go there i think they had enough with just her being like no i'm not gonna help you you were a jerk to me i don't even know that in general like on the whole it adds anything I don't know. It could You could have cut it from the episode, and I don't think we would have lost anything. Let's talk about the buyers. We last saw Joyce walking into the house, looking like she was headed into her doom. The very next time we see her is when she's perfectly fine. She's sitting in the bedroom. But it leaves me with this question of what happened after she went back in the house. Because she got scared, and she ran out, and then she walked back in. She stomped back in. Did the Demogorgon leave? Did she see it again? Well, like, what happened? Like, we never see, like, the aftermath of that. Joyce is ultimately right in that she even admits how she knows how crazy it all sounds trying to communicate with Will. But to one of your points from chapter one, she's right. But we're starting to see how being right is wearing on her. And that's making her even more higher strung than usual. Yeah, and... I am pretty fiercely protective of the people that I care about. So, like, would I march my dumb ass back into a building to try to, like, you know, fight a monster to protect somebody I care about? Yeah, but I would not be, like, casually hanging out in that space. Part of being protective would be me wanting to, you know, as a mom, me wanting to get Jonathan out of that space because it's not safe. So I think that's just another you know, stick on the pile of, I don't know what the decision making was for having that be Joyce's ending of the last episode. I'm just never going to like it. That actually makes me think with a lot of the moments that are clearly pulled out of other films, like in the section when Karen comes over and 
Holly is walking around through the house and how that's straight out of Poltergeist. The stuff in the beginning of this episode with Barb and how that's the reference to Jaws. Like, I wonder if it's just, it's simple as they choose style over substance. And I think that might be like when people talk about Stranger Things is like, all it is is homage. All it is is reference. I think that might be kind of an example of what they're talking about. I don't think that's that encompasses all of Stranger Things. I think the very fact that these moments jump out and stand out to people like us, I think is part of how I know that it's not all that way. I mean, it, it's full of homage, yes, but I think it's it's a yes and situation, again, because it's not all there is to it. But I think what happens in these moments that we're talking about, that we're citing, it isn't a yes and. It becomes, only, it becomes at least mostly about the sight gag of it, the homage, the reference, rather than having the depth to it that I feel like, especially in the case of this season, the rest of the show feels like it embodies. So... Joyce walking into the house at the end of episode two is an example of that as well, because it's like we just want to have that visual reference of, a, of, of feeling like a horror film, probably some even specific shot in some specific horror film that I'm just not aware of. But by doing that, it makes it more shallow and it makes it not have the depth that it could have, you know, to your point about I'm disappointed because there's so much more they could have done with a moment like that. And in the case of something like this moment where, again, where Holly is walking around and it's a poltergeist reference, it doesn't matter because A, it's not something traumatic or overly frightening, and it's indicative of the story that's actually taking place, of the the plot that's being revealed, the fact that she's being led to, we're seeing, oh, Joyce is right, there is, the lights are behaving in a certain way, and we end up seeing the Demogorgon briefly. Yeah. You know? Maybe this is uh, just an instance of kill your darlings, because mm -hmm. there is not a doubt in my mind that these films that are being referenced are classics of their genre and probably favorites of the Duffer Brothers. And so it could very well be a thing where they just loved that reference so much that they weren't able to let it go to the detriment of the finished piece. Winona Ryder's performance, it's, you know, it's not a shock to me that her performance in this show is really impressive. The delivery of the line, I know, the way that she uses her physicality in this role, it's just great. She's fantastic. And I love all of the stuff with the Christmas lights. I also really love the sound design of the lights. That's equally as effective. It's a small detail, but I like it. I like, too, that when she starts communicating with Will, she has the wherewithal to ask first, are you alive? Yeah. And then, yeah, just the, the brilliance of writing out the alphabet. It's just I know. so smart. I want to be a mom like Joyce Byers, like mom goals, you know? Just 100% belief in herself and her child is it's just badass. Yeah, 100%. For Karen, too, like... When it rains, it pours because, you know, not only does Nancy come home and say, like, I'm worried about Barb. And you can see, you know, when Mike comes in and he is clearly upset and Karen comes out. So you can see Barb's parents in the living room with Nancy. So both of her kids basically are like, I need you, like, at the same time. <laughs> and one of my favorite moments in all of this show is when Karen comes out into the foyer after Mike's come home and he's crying and he just barely lifts his arms towards her. Oh, it breaks my heart in a good way, I guess. But it's real. It feels very real. You 
really, really, really believe the depth of their relationship at that point. And it's such a strong example of, yeah, you know, sometimes you might get annoyed with your mom when she cuts off your D&D session or, you know, something like that. But like, when you really, really, really are having a terrible time, you want a hug from your mom. And the fact that Karen is like, here I am right here. I've got you. I don't even she does because she doesn't even ask what's wrong or what happened. She just like goes straight into mom mode. And that's like really pretty powerful. Well, and that all it takes is for him to barely lift his arms and she just like wraps hers around him. Yeah. It's funny. This episode has my least favorite opening and my favorite closing of the entire series. I This is probably my favorite ending to any Stranger Things episode. The way it's edited, the, the music choice. I mean, I cry every single time I watch this conclusion. It's so powerful. The performances, just everything. I mean, the way that it's paced, it's just... Even though we know that Will is alive, or, you know, at least in some capacity, the weight of this reveal that he's, you know, again, quote, dead, it still works because the kids think he's dead. Hopper thinks he's dead. And Hop knows that he has to go tell Joyce and Jonathan this news. And I love the fact that no one in this episode says, other than the bullies in Jest, essentially, that will is dead no one says it it's all presented visually it's all shown and not told well i mean i guess mike says you were supposed to help us find him alive you know but it's yeah no one ever says it like point blank i mean case in point that final shot with joyce and jonathan in the foreground and then you just as the crane shot rises up and you just see that the police lights coming and it's just like it's all you need it's all you need to know what's coming it's just so powerful it continues to be powerful every time i watch it Weirdly, though, it's not, it's unique in that it doesn't leave me like scrant. Like, I remember at the end of, end of episode two, I was like, I want to watch the next one, you know, and the same thing with episode one. Like, this is actually one of the few endings that has a really solid conclusive feel that it doesn't leave me going scrambling to hit. Yes, play next episode. I mean, I, I, I do want to watch the next episode. Don't get me wrong. But it, the way that the episode is structured, it's just, it's so conclusive. I love it. It's so good. It's very cathartic. And I think that's why it feels more like a natural conclusion because it's not a cliffhanger. I love that song. I've actually loved that song ever since it was sampled in Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. But I love that the episode ends on a moment of, you know, people who love each other, seeking each other out and literally people holding each other. I am not a Game of Thrones fan, but something that I read about someone who did enjoy the show, their problem with the conclusion of the series was that even those people who loved each other that were still alive by the end of the series went their separate ways. And one thing he said was, no one has anyone to reach out to in the night. And what I kind of took from reading that article is, I think that's kind of a problem that we have a little bit across the board in a lot of media where it just seems like more edgy, more realistic, more artistic to not have anyone to reach out to in the night. And I don't actually think that that's realistic. I don't think that most people go through their lives without anyone. You know, maybe it is a romantic partner. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's your dog. But whatever, most people have someone that they can reach out to. 
And I think showing in the face of tragedy that these four people have someone to reach out to and showing them doing that while the song that's overlaid the scene refers to them as heroes is part of what makes it so so powerful and so cathartic and it's a very melancholy cover it's a very emotional rendition it doesn't feel triumphant in the way that it it does in other other covers of it but the message is still there and so there's a bittersweetness to it and i i agree yeah the that's really insightful that it's it's so cathartic that's completely true you're absolutely right i to your point about not having someone to reach out to i think it's that's also incredibly insightful and i think especially not to put too fine a point on it but i think that's something that we as a global population are kind of we're sort of walking through that right now you know yeah. because of how isolated we've had to be this year i mean i think like this episode played differently than it has because things have changed since I last watched it. And yeah, it was even more poignant than it has been. I think that says a lot about the longevity of this show, at least this season. We'll see if that continues into the next two, but I feel like the ending of this episode, it, I think it's going to endure. And I don't know if it's going to remain my favorite conclusion, but as of right now it is. Overall, I, I do enjoy this episode. I do too. I mean, I think it has some very serious misses, you know, I think there's some hits and some misses and I think the misses are uh, pretty wide, but like, I'm still on board, you know, like there's nothing that happens in the episode that makes me be like, I don't like this show anymore, you know? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot here. And even though I'm not like, I wasn't scrambling to watch the next episode, I am very keen and very eager to, to proceed and to our to our discussion for the next one so i think on that note that's going to conclude our discussion of chapter three holly jolly this has been a good discussion a really a really hearty discussion i'm yeah so thank you all for listening we'll see you again next time and until then over and out this was the point at which i was like okay, maybe Steve can sit with us, like, you know, on a trial <laughs> basis for, like, half of lunch, he can maybe sit with us. But, like, at the edge, right? So yeah. that if you annoy me, I can just reach out my foot and just kick you. <laughs>